This podcast is powered by the leading at the top of your game development experience. If you would like to work with Karen and the shockingly different leadership team to up-level the leadership execution acumen within your organization, visit developingyourgame.com to find out more. If you think about what we do as an industry, everything we touch has the potential to kill people and destroy the environment, literally everything. If we make a mistake, people die. And you can have an environmental catastrophe which can destroy a company overnight. So once you have a process in place, and that I don't care what that process is, if that process is how you drill a well, um, how you pig a pipeline, um, how you build a refinery, how you hire, what documents you use in HR, how do you do payroll? And in this industry, if you have that process in place and nothing's ever leaked, nothing's ever blown up, nobody's ever died, you don't want to change the process because it's a risk. Welcome to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we equipped you to more effectively lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. Each week, we help you sharpen your leadership acumen by cracking open the playbooks of dynamic leaders who are doing big things in their professional endeavors. And now your host, leadership tactics and organizational development expert, Karen Farrell-Rhodes. Hey there, superstars. This is Karen, and thanks for joining another episode designed to help you better lead at the top of your game. Now, as you know, for season three, each month we're featuring leaders who have interesting roles in a particular industry. And today's episode is part of our special series featuring the perspectives of journalists and editors in the media. And also on today's show, we're going to give you a taste of an expert who covers the oil and gas industry, which is probably largely a mystery to most of us. We're so proud to feature Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Mark has lived and worked in the oil and gas industry for over 25 years and has earned the much-deserved title as an industry insider. He runs the world's largest oil and gas podcast network with over 3 million listeners and sits on several oil and gas boards. So I want you to listen as Mark shares how he pivoted his career from an initial interest in wildlife management to what it is today. And also be sure to listen for his current thoughts about the state of leadership in the oil and gas industry. And then lastly, remember to stay tuned for just two minutes after the episode to listen to my closing segment called Karen's Take, where I share a tip on how to use insights from today's episode to further sharpen your leadership acumen. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, superstars. Welcome to another episode of the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast. As you all know, we're doing a special series uh, featuring the perspectives of journalists and editors of uh, different areas of specialty in the world of media. And this is a part of that series. And so we're so pleased to have on today's show, Mark LaCour, who is the editor-in-chief of the Oil & Gas Global Network. He has worked in this industry, the oil and gas industry, for over 25 years. He's a thought leader and speaker on it, and we're going to go deep into both the industry and what he has seen and observed for individuals leading at the top of their game in the industry. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Yeah, I appreciate the invite, Karen. By the way, your audience, I started when I was 12. That's why I have 25 years experience. (laughs) I know. You did not look like you've been in 25 years. You probably started when you were six. Just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one. Yes, I'll take it. 
Awesome. <laughs> well, we're very honored to have you on the show today, Mark, and you have a lot I know to share. So without wasting time, we'll just jump right into it. But before we get started on the great tips I know you're going to provide, uh, for as much as you feel comfortable, we'd love to learn just a tad bit about you on a personal level, anything that you might want to share. Yeah. So um, you would not think that somebody that runs a podcast network in the oil and gas industry uh, is also an environmentalist, but I am. So my degree is in wildlife management. When I got out of uh, the Marine Corps and I went to college, I wanted to save the planet. Um, haven't quite got there yet, still working on it. And then the other thing is uh, both myself personally and then woven into my company, we believe in giving back um, regardless of what your ethical or religious views are. You know, the ability to help another human being on this planet is something we should all strive to do. And sometimes we do a little bit, sometimes we do a lot, but we always do what we can. That's right. And I totally high five with you on that. That is part of my own personal values as well. So it's, it's great that we share that. And I know a lot of our listeners do as well. So thanks for sharing them. Well, let's um, jump right in, um, Mark. Um, can you share a little bit about how you got started in the industry <laughs> and why oil and gas? Yeah. So oil and gas, because I needed a job. So <laughs> I, <laughs> quite frankly, I got out of college with my degree in wildlife management, and this was in the 80s, late 80s. And at that time, the only jobs you could really get was with the state and federal wildlife and fisheries for like 14000 a year. So unfortunately, reality kind of slapped me in the face. And so I started applying for anything and everything. And the phone company in the east part of the US, Bell South, called me and said, hey, we'd love to hire you. And I said, okay, because I'd love to have a job. <laughs> and they hired me, which is one of the best experiences of my entire life to go work for a company that old that has process and procedure and training down pat, that type of name recognition. And uh, Karen, they gave me the oil and gas book of business because no other salesperson in that entire company wanted to deal with Exxon and Chevron. And me being naive and just needing a job, I said, yeah, I'll take it. That was my introduction. It was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. So um, because I didn't know the industry, I went to my clients, the, the big oil super majors and service companies and said, look, I don't know this industry at all. I do know telecom and I promise you, I will be a really good uh, account rep for you. I will never rip you off. I'll always tell you the truth, even if you don't want to hear it and I'll do good business. And they, the oil and gas industry kind of took me under their wing and they go, come here. And they showed me everything because they wanted to teach me. It's still like, it's one of the things I love about this industry. It's still an industry of people doing business with people. So I was very fortunate that, you know, the, the chef, maybe I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to give any trouble, but okay. you know, there's a refinery in Pasigula, Mississippi. And the refinery manager drove me around, showed me how the refinery work. The first time I went offshore, I went with a major service company. I just jumped in a helicopter in Lafayette, Louisiana. We flew offshore. You can't do that now. Um, but it was just a wonderful learning experience. Um, and then, you know, you fast forward to where I am now and all that experience and all those connections have only helped me build this podcasting network that, that we're, we're talking about. That is just amazing. And I'll just say that that's an example of just industry leadership right there with you and your clients, because for them to take the time, that's a true partnership for them to take yeah. the time to help you do a deep dive into their industry so you can better help you know them and then they can better help you and vice versa is truly something that's rare in these day and age, unless you're seeing it. I'm not seeing it out there. It's <laughs> not as much as it used to be because everybody is so busy that people's intentions are still there. People still want to help. But with this always on world, it's hard to find the time to do that handholding like, like you used to do in the 80s and the 90s. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you had a very successful career, you know, partnering with them through the business uh, when you were working at, and was it Bell? I don't want to know. Bell South. Okay. So what was that transition like when you decided to start your podcast network? Okay. I'm going to tell your audience the truth. Some of my audience have always heard, already heard this. So my last corporate gig was with a company called Forrester Research. I had the oil and gas key accounts. Um, and about 15 years ago, they capped my commission. And it just pissed me off, quite frankly. Like, really? I make you an extra $20 million and you can't give me 5000 of it? Right. So I started my first company, Modal Point, which is still around, basically kind of out of anger. And in the process, and that was a market research company focused on the oil and gas industry. And in the process of growing that business about nine years, almost 10 years ago now, uh, my marketing guy came to me and said, we should start a podcast to promote the business. And I looked at him and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard come out of your mouth. Nobody listens to podcasts. Uh, because Karen, back then, there was no app. So you had to understand how to download an MP3 file. Apple had introduced a new piece of hardware called an iPod, and they had targeted a new genre, which is podcasting. But everybody that bought an iPod just used it for music, not for podcasting. There was no broadband. Um, so it's hard to do remote interviews like we're doing now. The software to edit audio is expensive and hard to use. And so my marketing guy just every day would ask me, and I don't know if you have children, but if you ever had a four-year-old ask you the same question, eventually you say yes, so they'll just shut up. And so that's what my marketing guy did. He wore me down and I said yes, just so he would leave me alone. And what I didn't know is we started the first oil and gas podcast in the world. Three months into it, Red Wing Boots calls me and said, hey, we want to sponsor your podcast. And I almost said, why? But the old sales guy me kicked in and said, shut up, let them talk. And that was the beginning of this empire that I sit on now. Amazing. All because someone pissed you off. I think you could solve world hunger, Mark, <laughs> if someone pisses you off enough. But that is amazing. But you know, I don't want to uh, downplay it either because sometimes it's those life-changing events that affect your core, your emotions, your values. But yes, you might have a gut reaction to, but you never know when you take action, what's right around the corner. And it sounds like it was 100%. You never know where you end up. That's true. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, let's move into um, some of your thoughts on on leadership. And, uh, you know, one of the questions I I love to uh, highlight or spotlight is, um, you know, if there are any either individuals or companies, either famous or not, that are doing big things in the oil and gas industry. Let's start there. And then we'll talk about some of your theories in, in, in leadership overall. But is there someone that you can either name or not name or give kudos to that are doing big things in the oil and gas industry? There's been so much change. In, there's been more change in the last five years than the previous 20. Some so why do you think that more, is? Uh, it's a combination of things. Uh, one is for the for the first time in almost its history, the oil and gas industry is facing a lot of negative public perception, right? You know, 20 years ago, people were excited. If you got a job offer by Exxon, now people think Exxon Mobil's destroying the planet. Um, that limits our ability to hire and retain talent. Um, at the same time, the world's energy needs are going up. And right now, I'm telling you right now, I'm a big fan of renewables, but renewables have their place. And hydrocarbon energy is the easiest way for the earth to provide cheap, reliable energy to the world. That changes things like culture and education. And all of that wrapped together means that the oil and gas industry, for, for, for as long as I've been in for the first time, are doing things differently, which is wonderful to see. You're seeing technology companies come in. I mean, you know, Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, SAP, Oracle, and really help make a difference. You're seeing artificial intelligence, robotics, 
uh, big data analytics, all stuff that other industries had adopted a while ago. And this industry, quite frankly, didn't have to. And now, in a lot of ways, we have to. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing that we have a new younger workforce. One of my pet peeves the last 25 years in this industry, and I, and I have a passion for oil and gas industry, but you hear this all the time. Well, we've never done that before. And to me, that is not an excuse. Well, just because you've never done it before doesn't mean there's not a better way. And this new younger workforce is coming in, doesn't say that. They go, show me, let's try something different. And so um, you bring all that together and it's just the perfect storm for innovation and even things like startups. There were no startups in this industry forever. Chevron wouldn't do business with a startup because it was a risk because they're a small company. Now Chevron has a venture capital group to do what? Go find startups. Because Chevron knows that what it needs to compete in the future is not going to come from some huge conglomerate. It's going to come from some two-man shop in Chile or in, in South Beach or in Oklahoma, you know? And right. so it's just, just a wonderful time to be in the industry. Well, I must admit, it sounds like quite an evolution because I had mentioned to you that uh, one of my past clients is British Petroleum. And this was a while back before before those five years. And one of the things that they were trying to tackle is nothing's, I'm not giving away any secrets. They talked about it a lot is that they were trying to become more agile. And, you know, they had so many different departments that were operating wonderfully, but in their own silos. And they were trying to, you know, uh, promote a lot more cross department collaboration, awareness and what have you. And it was kind of ingrained in the culture that you kind of come and do what you do and do it well and keep it rolling. And, and they wanted to be more agile because they saw where the future is going. So it's so great to hear that that's starting to break through in the entire industry now. That's amazing. Yeah, so you got to see behind the curtain. I did. <laughs> what, what you saw at BP, uh, and historically BP has been a bunch of individually siloed business units, each with their own budget, their own president, their own CIO. Yes. Don't talk to each other. So from the outside, you think BP, let me tell you inside up until recently, BP pipeline didn't even talk to the people that worked in BP exploration and production. Those people did not talk to the people that worked in BP refining. And so you have all these multi-billion dollar uh, lines of business that literally if they would just talk to each other would drive millions of dollars of efficiency. But because they've never did it before, they would tell you, we've never done that before. And they just kept on doing it the merry way. And now you're seeing that change and it's wonderful. It is wonderful. You're you're absolutely spot on. <laughs> Drop the mic on that one. That was exactly what we saw. What other evolutions are going on in the oil and gas industry right now? Anything else that comes to mind? Some really cool stuff. So, um, speaking of BP and Beyond Petroleum, when they changed their name, yeah, you know, about 15 years ago, a lot of big companies in this industry jumped on the renewable bandwagon, and, and quite honestly, it was greenwashing. They did it for PR and, and marketing reasons not really wanting to understand the renewable industry. And in my book, energy is just energy. Not that long ago, we thought killing whales was a great way to light our homes. That was not a good idea. We started off with biofuels, burning wood, which unfortunately still a lot of the world still does that, burns wood and cattle dung for fuel. And so what's happened recently is the industry has stopped, turned around and went back and looked at renewables, not from a greenwashing point of view or not from a marketing point of view, but can we make money at it? Now, that sounds selfish, but it's not. If you want solar or wind or geothermal or hydro to stand on its own, it needs to be profitable. It cannot be propped up by subsidies forever, right? So when you look at things like large commercial wind farms, large commercial solar installs, 
around the world, you want a company that has done enormous global projects successfully, both from an engineering, project management, and finance point of view. Who's better than Exxon or Chevron or BP or Shell, right? So it's a natural fit for them to look at renewables and see if they can make money at it. And there's there's that pendulum swings back and forth. Um, unfortunately, we have politics involved in our energy mix. And I'm not going to pick one side over the other, but I will say this much here in the U.S., one side hates us, the oil and gas industry, so that doesn't help anything. Right. The other side has no idea what we're doing. Well, that doesn't help anything either, right? right. <laughs> so we need to disconnect politics from energy yeah. because unfortunately, there's still babies being born in Africa by candlelight. That should not happen in 2023, it's- right? There should not be a shortage of fresh water or food or medical supplies. We have the resources in the Western world here and in Europe. We just haven't figured out a way to share it with the rest of the world. We got to get our politics out the way so that we can help everybody. And then we figure out what energy mix works wherever you are and whatever point in time that you're in. And I must say, Mark, so yes, and I must say that it doesn't help. And from Karen's opinion, it doesn't help that, you know, you we keep hearing record profits from big players in the oil and gas industry. And we're not able to tackle that, you know, the renewables, especially when you think, and I have a, let me go back to another thing you said earlier. You said we can't subsidize it forever. We can't. But there's an argument about that for food, too. We subsidize our food and farmers and have done that for years. And I don't see that ending either. I just think we're going to need to continue for a while until, to your point, some of the big players can figure out the business model that makes sense, right? Or am I thinking about this wrong? No, no, you're right. Let me talk about the big profits for a second, because that's that's something that a lot of people don't quite understand. Sure. So this industry is cyclic. It's also very expensive. If you today in 2023 wanted to go drill a well in the Gulf Coast in deep water, you could pay about a billion, not a million, a B, a billion dollars to the federal government to get that lease. You have 10 years to make money off that before it gets thrown back in a pot and auctioned off again. Now you got to go rent an oil rig. That's a million dollars a day. And you got to staff it. That's $600,000 a day. So you got for one well in the Gulf of Mexico, you have 1 billion out the door, 1.6 million a day. And only 70% of the oil wells in the world are profitable, which means you have a 30% chance you just wasted all that money. No other company in the world except maybe Apple has enough cash to get in this industry, right? It's capital intensive, which means for some time, like from 2017 to 20, 2022, we, or 2020, let's say, we lost money, hundreds of billions of dollars, right? But we're okay with that because when the pendulum swings, we'll make that money back. However, the public never pats us on the back when we lose billions. They only talk to us when we make billions, right? And if you look at the actual margins, McDonald's makes more margin year over year, better profit margin than any oil and gas company, right? McDonald's makes a steady 26, 27% profit margin. Exxon makes 10 or 11%, right? So you have to understand that it's very capital intensive that we lose billions and that sometimes we make billions. And the reason that we've made so much money lately is the world is in an energy shortage. And we're in an energy shortage because our world's politicians try to push renewables too fast. Mm. I'm very clear here. Renewables have their place. I love them. But you can't push them too fast, right? And so because of that, and there's a lack of energy, the only gap that could be, only thing could fill that gap was hydrocarbons, right? And so, yes, we were making record profits, but we also lost record profits. And nobody talks about that part of it. Fascinating. Oh, my gosh. I'm learning so much. In addition, about the industry. How did the... Natural disasters like Deepwater Horizon and Exxon, what is it, Exxon Valdez, Valdez. Yep. how did 
those incidents impact the industry? Is it does it cause it to have to recover? I know they got a hit, a PR hit, definitely, but how does that impact when major stories like that um, are out there in the yes, world? Let me back you up. Those are not natural disasters. Those are man-made disasters. There's a cause and effect for for every for both those that you just mentioned. A couple of things before I get into it. Number one, have you ever heard of a Chinese or Russian oil spill? And the answer to that is probably no. No. That means one of two things. That means they're better at it than us and the Europeans, or when they make a mistake, they don't tell. And I've seen it with say. my own eyes. Don't the tell. truth yeah. is they don't tell. Here in Europe, if we make a mistake, we tell. So you, please, public, remember that. The Exxon Valdez totally changed the health, safety, and environmental outlook and culture in the oil and gas industry. Quite frankly, up until that point, a move in large qualities accrued to the ocean was accepted as a standard that people got complacent. And just like anything else, when you get complacent, accidents happen. They do. So that's what happened with that. And it totally changed the way we deal with large qualities accrued around the world, which by the way, to your audience, any one point in time in the last decade, there's more weight in crude being moved in our world's oceans than all the weight of all the fish combined. Think about how, think about it. That puts it in perspective, right? Yes. Yeah. And so we never want a crude spill and we never want a crude spill of magnitude. And so everything has changed from the way they construct the ships, to all the sensors they use, to the process of how many pilots, co-pilots, captains you have on it, which is good. The BT Macondo incident, once again, was a human problem literally caused by greed. Speaking of BP, BP paid uh, Halliburton to hurry up and plug and abandon that well, um, which means Halliburton had a financial incentive to do it as fast as possible. And when you're dealing with a well, you don't want to do anything as fast as possible. You want to do it right, right? right. And so that, that was a massive disaster that almost cost BP its company. They, they, this close to being bought because of that disaster, they had to sell a lot of their side business to keep their stock price up. But what was cool, and it's going to bring tears to my eyes, so i got to be careful I don't cry. Oh, you can cry. This is a safe space. (laughs) When that that happened, Karen, every oil company in the world that could help volunteered. No contracts, no arranging pricing. It's like, what do you need? Literally the entire world showed up and did anything and everything they do to take control of that well, and they did. And then once they took control of that well, they cleaned it up. And now we've learned what not to do, both from a process point of view, from a technology point of view, and from a cultural point of view. And the culture was the, the driving force of that incident in that the contractor was driven to do quick work, not quality work. Mm, amazing. That is heartwarming and necessary um, yeah. at the time, you know, definitely. So because the oil and gas industry is so complex what types of traits have you seen that the most successful leaders had to have? Because it is very dynamic, fraught with, like you said, political challenges up, down, and across, public perception, you name it. What types of individuals seem to work best as top leaders in the industry? So I have two answers to that. Okay. <laughs> Until recently, it was command and control. It was like a military organization. If you spent time at BP, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's top down. Don't you even think about questioning why, right? Now, that sounds old fashioned and it, it's really not. It's really what it is, is risk aversion. If you think about what we do as an industry, everything we touch has the potential to kill people and destroy the environment, literally everything. If we make a mistake, people die and you can have an environmental catastrophe, which can destroy a company overnight. 
So once you have a process in place, and that I don't care what that process is, if that process is how you drill a well, um, how you pig a pipeline, um, how you build a refinery, how you hire, what documents you use in HR, how do you do payroll? And in this industry, if you have that process in place and nothing's ever leaked, nothing's ever blown up, nobody's ever died, you don't want to change the process because it's a risk, right? And that had served us well from the Rockefellers all the way up until, say, 2015, 2017, right? Now that the industry is changing and it's a different industry than it always has been before because of the, the factors you just mentioned, now we need true collaboration. And so what I'm seeing, the old leaders were... A lot of them had a military background, top-down command, command and control, didn't waver. You know, the old leaders were there no matter what, no matter, I don't care what caught a fire, what blew up, whatever, they were there. That's true. The new leaders are learning how to work, not just internally, but externally. You know, automotive has figured out just in time supply chain probably 40 years ago. As an industry, we still haven't figured that out. And finally, our new leadership is, is going, why do we need to reinvent the wheel? Let's go talk to our buddies in automotive and copy what they're doing. So you're seeing a lot more female leadership. And I think that's because I think women naturally by nature are more collaborative than, than men tend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing a lot more younger leadership. And the leaders today that are being successful are much more collaborative, both internally and building teams and crossing those functional boundaries like you talk about in BP, but also externally. Having to deal with negative public perception, the worst way to deal with it is ignore it. Right. The best way to deal with it is just go talk to them, which right. you're starting to see happen, which I think is great. I think that's great, too. But, you know, culture doesn't change overnight. So I'm sure that there's some and forget the phrase kind of old school leaders that are still there that kind of remember the industry of old. Right. And now have also now having to make space for this new breed of leader that has to lead in this new environment. So I'm just curious how. And you may not have the answer to the question, but I'm just curious how it starts like the culture is transitioning now, but I'm still wondering what additional roadblocks do they have to tackle? Is it time and it's, reinforcement? It's a, of- a couple of things. So you're right in that the old guard is still around, although they're not in complete power like they used to be. Karen, I, I, like I sit on the board of the API. Um, I'm 58 years old. They call me the kid. Can you imagine how old these guys are if they call me the kid and I'm 58 yeah. years old? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, years, not just me, but I've seen other people. I've seen like a lot of organizational development psychologists get hired as coaches to try to tackle this problem. Unfortunately for these guys that have done it the same way for so long, these men and women, mostly men, unfortunately, I don't think you can change them. I think you have to wait. And I hate to say this, but the reality is I think you have to wait for them to retire yeah. and leave the industry so new, younger, fresher thinking blood can come in. And it's, it's happened. It's actually happened at a record pace right now. Wow. Um, now, don't get me wrong. These, this older guard has forgotten more about the industry than I'll ever know, right? They started when they were 17-year-old in West Texas out on a rig somewhere, and they moved there up to executive management. And that right. type of experience is invaluable. Sure. The person that's replacing them probably came from an MBA background, um, super intelligent, collaborative, understands modern businesses, practices, but they didn't start on a rig. They've never picked up a torque wrench. so. Let's see what happens. So first thing, you can't change where it's going. It's already headed that direction. Let's see if that lack of frontline experience makes a difference. I I don't know yet. I think it's still too early to tell. Too early to tell, huh? Interesting. Well, let me turn the tables and talk about um, you just a tad. Because you have, you know, been in the industry so long and you have a lot of connections 
it can't be easy to run a podcast network in this industry. So I'm curious your leadership style and how have you able to be so, be so successful thus far? Part of it's luck. Um, like I said, we accidentally started the first oil and gas podcast in the world. Wow. Uh, that show had listeners in every country on the planet except one South African country. And in April, we picked up four listeners. Yeah, I was getting ready to pay somebody to listen to me. This is that show, so I could say we in the world. Yeah. And in, and in April, we picked up four listeners. So that, that podcast literally has listeners, thank you, in every single country on the planet. So the key to growing this, part of it was luck. Part of it is I came from an enterprise sales background. So unlike a lot of entrepreneurs who have a great idea that then go try to execute, but have no idea how to sell it, the first thing I thought of was how to sell it. How do you generate cash flow? And any business, especially in the beginning, cash flow is more important than almost anything, right? Yeah, it is. You pay your people and pay your bills. But I had already that, had that figured out. And then the next thing is just hiring good people. And I struggle with that. Even to this day, I have a, a tendency to want to hire people I like, which is the wrong way to hire people. I need to hire people that can do the job. And so what we figured out as a team is that Mark is not good at hiring people by himself. And so I am now no longer allowed to hire people. Um, they also took the keys of the bank away from me. I also can't wow. change my own logo. And when we hire now, it's a, it's a, it's a panel discussion and we have a, an executive team. There's a three of us that make the final decision and that works really well. So part of me building this is learning my own shortcomings. And I'd like to say being okay. I'm still not okay with it. I still struggle with it. But accepting the fact that I'm not good at everything yeah. and, and bringing in people in that are better at it than I am. Well, that's a trait that you and I both share because I am not the best in the minutia, but I bring people along who are. And so a lot of decisions are made for you know my firm as well in a group discussion. I do better in teams yeah. than twirling uh, like the Tasmanian devil in my own head. So I, I get you on that one, definitely. <laughs> so let me ask you this, since uh, since we both share this trait. Yeah. Secretly in your head, don't you still think though that your way is the right way? Even always, you... always. Yeah, okay. Right. So it's not just me, okay. <laughs> but I look for justifications of why not. So I am a good listener. I do embrace other perspectives and I may add on to mine, but I uh, many times I think, I still have the best idea, but I let it play out. <laughs> yeah, me too. Also, um, Mark, um, yeah, as you know, we'd love to ask our guests which of the leadership tactics that I write about in my book really resonated with you. And the one you had been so kind to share with me was leading with intellectual horsepower. And listeners, as you remember, especially for my newbies out there, leading with intellectual horsepower is all about using your areas of expertise to what I call peek around corners and look for trends and opportunities that others may miss. And, you know, bring that to the table to try to make a difference in your workplace or in the world. So I'm just curious, Mark, why would leading with uh, intellectual horsepower really resonate with you? Because it's exactly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> so I've always been a strategic thinker. You can measure the ability to think strategically, just like you can measure mathematical skills or reading comprehension or anything else. And over time, with more and more experience, I get better at it. And strategic thinking is just your ability to look at what's going on now and extrapolate in the future what those outcomes may be. In fact, every year I do my predictions for the next year. So uh, that November of this year, I'll do my predictions for the oil and gas industry for 2024. And I've been doing that for about nine years. And somebody crunched the numbers. And in the very early days of me doing the predictions, I was about 50% accurate. 
I'm now up to 77% accuracy. So the data shows that I am getting better at predicting what's coming in the future, right? Yeah. So that leadership style works really well with me. You know, like in the podcasting space, you're seeing a lot of creators, young creators, confuse video with podcasting, which is audio only. Right. And a lot of people think video is a better choice. And I humbly disagree with them because when you're, when this, and I realize you're shooting video as well, but when people listen to the audio version of this, Karen, they can consume your content when they're doing something else. That's when right. they're commuting, working out, washing dishes, walking the dog, whatever. You can't do that with video. Right? Right. So I'm watching all these creators spend money and time making sure they have a good video presence. And the strategic thinker in me is saying, you have a great Why? video presence. That's not how the best way to grow your audience. That's you right. take the same resources and do just audio only and, and t- double or triple plus if you're a video creator, you're probably on YouTube and YouTube really controls who sees your videos, not you. That's right. right. So it's little things like that. I think that type of leadership fits both my personality and my background. I wish I was one of those more charismatic leaders. I've had several of those in my life. And literally, I would have walked through the gates of hell for them, right? They they inspire so much loyalty. But I'm just not that, right? I'm, I'm more the strategic thinker, listening what's coming forward. Know, you're pretty charisma. They have a lot of charisma to me. So <laughs> I think don't sell yourself short. But I do agree with you, Mark, and I want the listeners to understand as well. You're right. Podcasting, you, it expands your reach and it makes it easier for your audience to consume information. And one of the only reasons why we also include video is because I'm also in leadership development and I know adult learners. And sometimes people need to have alternative ways to assume, uh, consume information. And so we do provide that, but you're absolutely spot on that they should double down if you're interested in uh, podcasting on the audio side. Because yeah, we, we do video as well. Yeah. Uh, video, if you're trying to explain something that's complex, it's just easier to see it than yeah. to try to describe it. You're so right. You're so right. Well, gosh, we literally blinked, Mark, and I cannot believe time has almost gone, but a couple of quick things. Is there one lasting piece of advice or tip or something that you love to mention that we have you had not had a chance to do already? Yeah. So for everybody that's listening out there, regardless of what you do professionally, put some time in your calendar, literally block out time in your calendar to just learn. I'm not talking about scrolling cat videos, right? I'm literally, whatever you're interested in, learn. Um, it's one of the best things I think any person can do. I think it helps you. The more information you have that's good, solid information, the better life decisions you will make, both for yourself personally, your family, and for your business. I have eight hours a month in my calendar just to learn, and it served me so well. And that was a tip. I'm, I'm actually, I'll, I'll steal that. I actually had a chance to meet Stephen Covey back before it was, uh, it was just when he just started the seven habits of highly successful people. And that was one of the tips on the side that he told me that I've taken to heart, and it's paid off over and over and over again. So put some time in your calendar to just learn. Amazing. We'll definitely do. Now we will have information about your background and where to find you, Mark, in the show notes, but I'd love to let you put a voice behind it. So if people want to listen into your network or to find you, what would be the best modes of kind of way? For the network is OGGN.com, oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. I think we have 16 separate podcasts as of today. Uh, like I said earlier, we look at everything as energy. So we have an energy transitions podcast. Uh, we have a renewables podcast coming. We have a hydrogen podcast coming. Everything else is is kind of industry specific. Uh, we do have a geopolitical podcast, which is our fastest growing show ever. 
Wow. And it's one of my personal favorites. And I do know I'm biased because it's on my network, but give that show a listen. My host of that show has the ability to weave history and current events together in a story, almost like a true crime drama, where you want to get to the end. And it's just a beautiful thing. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe you can hit me up on social. Look for Mark LaCour. LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm also on Twitter. Um, every place but TikTok. I, I'm just not quite there yet, but all the other social platforms, I'm there. I'm not on TikTok yet either. My daughter and is, but yeah, that's the one I haven't done. But I'm like you. I'm at, at the main ones where people can find me. So, <laughs> well, thank you again, Mark, so much for the gift of your time. Tons of great information that you shared about your industry and where it's going. We really appreciate you and appreciate even the tips that you've given our audience as well. I appreciate you having me on. You know, I look at every other podcaster's family, right? So I I appreciate you having me on. If there's anything I can do to help you or your audience, people just reach out. Thank you so much. And thank you to listeners for uh, tuning in on this episode. We can't wait to see you back here. Same time, same channel next week. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief of the Oil & Gas Network. Links to his bio, his entry into our leadership playbook, and additional resources can be found in the show notes, both on your favorite podcast platform of choice and on the web at leadyourgamepodcast.com. And now for Karen's take on today's topic of the oil and gas industry. So I thought it might be helpful to provide you information to better understand both the opportunities and challenges that are faced by the oil and gas industry. In fact, did you know that 96% of everyday essentials like soap, clothing, electronics, pharmaceuticals, and cosmetics are made from petroleum? You know, I didn't realize that until I was doing research uh, for this episode. This is absolutely wild in my mind. And I know that many of us have an eye on reducing our negative energy footprint in a responsible way. But remember, knowledge is power. So I encourage you to get more curious about this industry that affects our daily lives. So in the show notes, I want you to be sure to check out three resources in particular. The first is an article on how the U.S. oil and gas industry works by the Council on Foreign Relations. It's an absolutely fascinating and quick read. The second is a research, uh, I'm sorry, it's a resource in it and a research guide on the oil and gas industry from the Library of Congress. And the third is Mark's resources that he offers via the Oil and Gas Global Network on OGGN.com. There's just absolutely priceless information there. So be sure to subscribe to his newsletter and podcast to stay up to date on the twists and turns of this sometimes volatile industry. Now, I have personally consulted with enterprise-level companies in the oil and gas industry, and while I must admit that historically it has been a very rigid industry, I too am hopeful, like Mark, that innovation and fresh talent will uh, be opening up new and exciting opportunities for those that are interested in making a mark in this particular industry and within their particular job function. It can be very lucrative for you all. So I encourage those that are interested to make sure that you explore opportunities that might be right for you. Well, that's all for today. Uh, Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast with just one friend, because by doing so, you will empower them to also lead at the top of their game. Thanks a ton for listening and see you next week. And that's our show for today. 
Thank you for listening to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we help you lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. You can check out the show notes, additional episodes, bonus resources, and also submit guest recommendations on our website at leadyourgamepodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn by searching for the name Karen Rhodes with Karen being spelled K-A-R-A-N. And if you like the show, the greatest gift you can give would be to subscribe and leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice. This podcast has been a production of Shockingly Different Leadership, a global consultancy which helps organizations execute their people, talent development, and organizational effectiveness initiatives on an on-demand project or contract basis. Huge thanks to our production and editing team for a job well done. Goodbye for now.